Welcome to Transformations, the HR management podcast by Cardata. I'm your host, Lindsay Claiborne, and together with our guests, we'll uncover and share stories from real HR professionals and dive into how they succeeded and sometimes failed in leading their people and organizations toward new ways of working. The role of HR has drastically changed. In today's world, HR is no longer just an administrative function. It is a key business driver. HR leaders are standing at the forefront of their organizations, navigating new challenges, and leading major shifts in everything from recruitment, total rewards, engagement, retention, leadership, and more. In order to stay ahead of what works for their businesses, HR leaders are tapping into new ways of thinking and leading. I can't wait to share our dynamic and in-depth conversations with you. Remember, change is inevitable. Transformation is influential. All righty. So we are here today with Agata Zasada, who is joining us. And we are so excited to have you on the podcast today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And we're really excited to talk about your journey in HR. Uh, You've been in HR for over 15 years. And we know that the world alone has changed in that time. But most importantly, and most prominently is the fact that HR has changed and the practices of HR have changed a lot during that time. So I'm curious, let's go maybe a bit back to the beginning and what inspired you to embark on a career in HR? Yeah, this is a funny question I get because I wish I would, I wish I could say I was inspired, but mostly I fell into HR. So originally I wanted to be in marketing and I was drawn to that because of the creative process. And also there has, there is structure, there is a playbook, but then you get to create within that. I ended up being exposed to HR to realizing that every day was not the same and ended up doing a degree in human resources when I kind of realized, wow, there's something similar to that. I had to come back to British Columbia and take over my dad after he had a heart surgery. So I was like, I needed to do, do something in my evenings. I went to um, evening school for human resources. And that's really what what brought me together uh, into HR. And I was drawn to it in the end because it's similar to marketing, that there's a lot of creativity involved, a lot of problem solving, and you can make it fit. The role can make you, can fit you as much as you can also fit the organization. I'm just like, you know, no two HR people are alike. And I, I really like that. I can definitely relate to that. I was really drawn to the fact that every day is a different day. Every day you're faced with new challenges. Some days are hard. Some days are, are really fun. And just being able to every day kind of challenge yourself and and be able to learn something new, help someone, encourage people on their journey. It really is rewarding from from that aspect, both personally and, and professionally. And over the time since you've gotten into this field, what have you seen change over that time? Yeah, I think there's like there's quite a few changes in the last 15 years, but I always, I kind of bucket into two things. I think the first is HR is no longer seen in some companies around compliance, like the compliance police. We're more often at the table than not, and our voices are not just heard, but valued. So I think there's been this like kind of big tectonic shift about, I think it was three years ago, I had this stat that it was like the average age of a CPO was 64. And so there's this new age of HR cohorts that are really stepping into these roles. We didn't grow up as a compliance police, right? That's not what we, why we became who we became. And so I think that's like one big shift. The second is culture went from this like trendy companies doing it now to everyone has to like social media, you know, access to information and places like Glassdoor, you kind of can't hide anymore. Right. And, and there's an abundance amount of choice for employees. So organizations have spent a lot of time cultivating cultures compared to 15 years ago, where I think it was 
some did, some didn't, they kind of did it, but barely. I think that's really shifted where like culture now is just like a requirement of every organization. Yeah, I I like what you said there about cultivating culture, because I was actually just speaking to someone about this the other day, and their belief was that we don't actually create culture, but we actually we curate it. And it sounds very similar to your term of, of cultivating it. What's your take on that? Do we create culture or do we we cultivate and curate? Yeah, we don't definitely don't create culture unless you're like a, a like a company of one <laughs> and starting from the beginning, you're always cultivating. And I actually had a town hall yesterday and we were talking about culture as a, a pretty big pillar of our town hall. And I, I said, like, culture is changing every day. Like, I, it's, it's never not evolving. It's the people that come in. It's the people that get promoted. It's the people that leave. It's the decisions, attitudes, like mindset that we bring every day that actually builds culture. And it's not my job. It's not the CEO's job. Like, we're there to shepherd it and cultivate the things we want to have. But yeah, I do believe in it's a cultivating and it's ever evolving. Like you can't ever, even when it's great, you can't even like stop it from changing, you know, it will always evolve. Yeah. And you also mentioned there too about accountability. You know, we are held, companies in general are held to a much higher standard nowadays in terms of how the environment that they they create for their people, how they treat their people. Yeah. What do you think has has fed into this. You mentioned social media. Are there any other forces that have pushed us in this direction where employers and businesses are are held accountable to the environment that they create and how they treat their people? The forces I think are like competition is really what I think drove, drove culture to being like important enough. And I think eventually there was enough like Harvard Business Review articles that was like good culture is results in like great company performance. And I think it was a, there was enough proof in the pudding over time that between kind of fierce talent competition and then just like the companies that did it and did it well were successful, you know, like, and so I think between those two things, it's just became, you know, almost I, I, at this point, I would say it's table stakes. Um, now there, there are obviously companies that are still figuring it out, but I think that the access to information, I don't even want to say social media, but the access to information now is just so high compared to 15 years ago where like you can you can figure out if a company has a culture or, or if they're good or what people feel about the CEO before you even like apply for a position, right? So yeah, it's just the the world has really changed when it comes to like who what we are as organizations and what our culture stands for and how do we manifest it to be real, right? Mm, absolutely. And I'm such a fan of the the toolbox mentality for HR practitioners. Like I think that as we learn, as we grow. We add different tools to our toolbox, whether it's a, a process or a framework or whatnot. And we really only employ them when they, they make the most sense. We have to not everything is a one size fits all is going to work with every organization. But do you think there are some core, I was going to say culture building, but maybe I'll say culture curating tools thing every HR professional should be familiar with and have in their tool? Yeah, I think the one that I find kind of always surprises me that is lacking is actually analytics. And I know that might be like cliche because I feel like it's been around for a while. But analytics, like the analytical like toolbox competency, you don't need to be an expert. You don't even need to know how to calculate the stuff. But you need to get comfortable using measurement and analytics to be the voice or the data for what you're working on. Never strive for 100%. Like I never look for 100% completion or participation because that's it's just not for everything, right? Not at, not 
everything I build is for everyone. And I wouldn't use that as my measure of success. And just like, and the reason I say measurement and analytics, because measurement is like, you can box it like, oh, my performance management or my health and wellness or whatever, it's a box. And then analytics is looking at it as like the intertwined stuff. How does it relate, right? So, you know, we, as an example, I would, I would say that if I had a drop in turnover and someone's like, well, what happened? It's like, well, some of it is in my control, which is here are the things I've done. And I think those, and here's what the measurements in each of those things have contributed to an impact on something different, which is turnover. There's some things that are out of my control, like the market and et cetera. And being able to explain that narrative in, in terms that most of the executive team understands, like they eat data for breakfast, you know? So <laughs> I, I think that tool competency of analytics is just continues to need to be like cultivated ourselves, right? Like I'm always challenging myself, like when I hear it, you know, and, and you, HR metric as I don't know what that is. I don't know if I need it, but I'm going to read about it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And and like you were saying, not everything's going to work for, for every single organization. Exactly. It's about understanding our context. And what you said there is almost like analytics and the measurements themselves are like the micro, but then you have to zoom out and the macro is really what's our context internally, what's the context we operate in externally and remembering like we don't operate within a silo like people and culture doesn't operate within a silo. It's really embedded. Just like the rest of the organization, it's going to have those both internal and external influences. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Are there any tools or, that you're seeing that no longer really serve HR professionals that, you know, maybe at one point in time were commonly used, commonly applied, but have maybe proved not to be effective at really contributing to a curated, cultivated culture? Yeah, I'm gonna. I think I'm going to like say something controversial. So there's going to be like a caveat. This doesn't apply to every organization. I think this compliance and legal focus, I think that's really picked up. Like like lawyers or like employment lawyers are doing all these webinars. There's like this just huge compliance trend. It picked up 10 years ago, but it like re-picked up in COVID. And like, of course, if your organization is like, needs the safety and compliance for like people safety, this is not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about how much time I see HR professionals focus on like the bare minimum legal requirement stuff. And it's a little frustrating. Like you can find that pretty quickly. You don't need to become a lawyer. And I, I think if you just start with like doing the right thing and then check it against legal stuff. And again, you can have a lawyer. If you have one internally, you can find it pretty easily online. You don't really need to continue to cultivate like or build that like legal competency or that compliance competency. And if your executive team starts there, it just might not be the right place. Like, honestly, if you can't start with treat people with respect and dignity and just make sure that that what I find is when you do that, the legal stuff tends to be super easy. Yes, maybe controversial, but I would 100 percent agree with that. I think it's interesting that you brought light to the fact that there is a lot a rise in individuals feeling uh, like maybe their employers have lighted them or that they can take, you know, action against their employers. But what you said is, is, is important is that if we just act like decent human beings and uh, it can go a way that in, in ways that, you know, a 10 page policy or a 10 page legal process may not. <laughs> That's a really interesting point too. And I think it leads into my next question, which is about employee experience, about how people feel that they're treated day to day in the, in their jobs. 
how much or do you believe that the employee experience is largely impacted by leaders and direct managers or is it a function of something else? Yes and no. <laughs> I think it depends on how you build your HR strategy, right? So I, I talk a lot about people first. So for myself, I build my stuff for people, not managers. A lot of HR strategies are like empower our leaders. I don't have that in mind. I don't have that anywhere because I've made everything for all employees. Because again, I see employees as capable adults and their managers are really just empowering them to do stuff. And I quite literally try to never have something that's like a manager training or manager access that's like different than employees because they have already so much to do trying to lead people to achieve results. And I don't want the HR staff to be another thing they need to learn and do. That's that's kind of my my personal philosophy. Now, I understand different organizations, and I've been in different organizations where that doesn't work, right? Like retail doesn't work that way. You could you couldn't do that. You can't empower the employees to do a bunch of stuff when you have to, you know, scheduling and a bunch of other things and make sure people are performing and pay is right and all that stuff. So I get that doesn't work. So making the lives for everyone better, I find it just gives the manager leaders ability to perform, frankly. So I don't believe in building it the way I just said. What I do believe to make um, the leaders better is is actually coaching, right? Like live coaching, giving them HR partners that are really there about seeing them succeed and, and grow in their leadership competency, which is not a skill set. It's not a book. And then the problems around that should just be easy to inject because they actually, it's solving the problems that leaders trying to solve anyway. And so does an employee experience, you know, ha- have impact by the leader? Yes. Yes, it does. But it's not, to me, that's not where it starts or stops. Mm, this is the first time I've, I heard someone take that opinion on it. And it, it's kind of blowing my mind, to be quite honest, <laughs> that because a lot of what we listen to, what we hear about is like leader empowerment, leader empowerment, leader empowerment. I'm curious what made you shift your mind? Has it all, Have you always thought this way? Or was there something that triggered you to say, hey, it doesn't actually start and end with the leader. It's it's going a layer deeper. Yeah. I don't think I've always felt this way. I think maybe like subconsciously, I always felt like it's really weird that we treat employees like children. And like a way to not be treated like a child is to become like a manager. And then I'm like the adult of children, even though I just came out of that group myself. Like the it always seemed a little bit weird to me because I was like, we're trying to do mega stuff. And like, yeah, I'm being uh, treated like I'm not a capable person to like, under, like, tell me the information and I'll make the better, like, give me enough information. I'll probably make the right choice, right? Or or strive to make the right choice or the right impact, et cetera. I know where in my career that shifted was when there was just a wild amount of turnover. The wrong people were being promoted for the wrong reasons, right? And then it's kind of like, how do we stop that from continuing to happen? How do we help the organization have really impactful people be impactful in the roles they should be in, not in management, because they don't want to be treated like children, right? And I think that was kind of the beginning of my evolution on this whole thing. I've been fortunate to work in some great organizations that had really stable leadership teams, but I also wanted employees to be like not attached to their leader, that they could have a really fruitful career in, an, in the same organization and they they can drive. Most of us, like as adults, can drive. Like, why can't, we can literally use heavy machinery. Why can't I drive my own life and my career? Right. And so it was this kind of evolution of thinking that I, I've come to. And I, I still believe in managers are really, really important. But I think building it from the employee base, you kind of you kind of solve bigger problems from that from that perspective. Yeah. 
Absolutely. I'm definitely going to noodle on that a little bit, (laughs) but it's, it's a really interesting perspective. And I'm curious, does that fall into what you said earlier about people first strategy? And maybe can you explain a little bit about what, what does people first strategy mean to you? Yeah. I've been talking a lot about it on an internal basis, but I'm going to actually like zoom out for two seconds because people first strategy is actually when you build things for your customer. And I know that sometimes we were like, why are you talking about a customer? Like you're an HR lady, like stop it. The HR stuff will come after it, but people first can't be just an internal thing or it will become synonymous with how you spend on your people. It's like, well, you know, we're people first, so we get lunch or whatever. But when you really put your clients first, like really your customers, everything internal will snap in place, right? Internally, we also build things for our people, but we are always striving to improve their ability to deliver value to our customers, right? Because the customer is where we're trying to do the work. And by doing that, we're always going to be improving because we we know that once we improve the, if we know that we want something to improve for our clients and we, and there's like a thing that we need to do internally, we therefore will do the hard thing that's right for our people so that they can do what's right for their people. And that's people first. It's actually thinking about it bigger than internal. It's easy actually when you think about it again, like similar conversation we just had is like when you think about it even further down the line, doing the right thing, it ends up being, yes, it's harder work, it's foundational work, but it actually pays itself off because you're not only taking care of your client, your employees, but your clients as well. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds a bit of one of the things I like explain of how I like to approach our culture is we want to reflect equally, like we want to reflect internally what we want to reflect externally. It aligns a bit with what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Like HR strategy I think this is where the next 15 years needs to evolve is like a lot of the times it's like, we're just going to care about performance and comp and all these like things that are traditionally HR, but it's like, no one lives in a vacuum. You, like your home, you don't just go and just clean one room and then leave the rest in a, in a disarray and be like work, but our house is great. It's like, it doesn't matter when the rest of the house is a mess. You know, it, it literally doesn't matter that one room is clean when the rest of it isn't. And so I think this is where the evolution of like HR strategy actually needs to be a reflection of your business strategy, like really push through the limits. On the topic of strategies, how do you identify, especially if you're going into an organization um, that's established and maybe had previous HR leadership, if they have the wrong strategy? This is actually probably the easiest question, but like the application of finding the answer can be hard. But the, the simple question is, is the company performing? Simple. It's If it is, it's probably pretty good. If it's not, it's probably not. And so I look at performance as a requirement for HR. If if I only cared about culture and it became, I and culture is great, but like the company's not performing, to me, that's a charity. That's not what we're up for. But if you only care about performance, it's not sustainable business, right? It's a, you'll have like dictatorship and toxic traits and all this stuff. But together, they have to work as a team. This isn't like by chance. And this is what we were talking about earlier on, on was, you know, companies have to cultivate a culture, whether they want to or not, they have to. And so HR strategy is wrong when the company's not performing. It's that simple to me. You mentioned the, the application of finding out is, is harder. Do you have any steps that you take or specific, or does it depend on the company of how you actually go about finding that? You can usually figure it out pretty quickly whether it's performing or not, but you may not be able to identify where it's not performing. And so like 
Uh, if your company has revenue targets, how are you doing against those targets? Right. What's been the growth rate? What's been the growth rate in your industry? This is back to that first toolkit of like analytics and data, right? You have to be comfortable understanding, hey, our industry has grown by 40%. We grew by 20. Why are we half of the industry standard? Or, hey, we're crushing all of our revenue numbers. Okay, well, does that mean that we just never, were we not really good at forecasting? Kind of be untapped. And it's just asking a ton of questions. I know I just went down like a revenue stream, but it, there's other stuff you can look at, like expenses, turnover, benefits claims. Like you can just collect a ton of information to figure out what's working and what's not. And I would just say, like, if you're trying to identify what needs to change, ask a ton of questions, like ask them far and wide, high and low, and listen to also what's not being said. I find that that's like you, when I hear other executives say like, this is what people are talking about. This is a, I was like, why are they not talking about this other thing? That seems clearly like the most important thing. And it's because there's just this elephant in the room that people just accept it. Right. And sometimes we to get, you know, have to be the courageous one and, and kind of get through there. Yeah, absolutely. It sounds like what you were saying just there. I know you said you went down a revenue hole, but I think that's really interesting because it sounds like we don't just want to speak. I think when we talk about data analytics within the realm of like people and culture and HR, we say, oh, we're going to speak the language of the business. But it sounds like you went a step further and it's not just speak the language of the business in our own specialty yeah. across the business. Understand each area because really that's where we're embedded. That's where we're touching. Yeah. Like an example is like if all of a sudden our business is like, hey, we're losing clients or customers at an alarming rate, like our churn numbers are uh, increasing. I shouldn't be like, I don't know how that impacts me. Like I immediately go to like, is it systems? Is it people? What did we do? What did we sell them the wrong thing? Like our people did something or are not doing something. And how do we support them through this? Right? Because really, if, if I put people first, it's like our clients don't see the value. Right? And so understanding those that stuff on a broader perspective will actually help us make better HR decisions and strategies to support the business versus like, yeah, I'm going to go hire a whole new support team or a whole new success team because churn went up and blah, blah, blah. Like that's not, that's usually not the right answer. Yeah. It sounds like early intervention is what you're saying. Yeah. We'll wait yeah. for them to come to you to say, oh, we've uncovered the problem and this is what yeah. we think it is. Can you do this? But instead taking that step and saying, okay, there's a problem. Let's get to the bottom of it. Let's be part. That's really interesting. And I, and what you said there is too is you know how do we support our people but i'm curious too how your organization was recently ranked as number one most inspiring workplace at, at for medium businesses what then not just a supportive work environment but what creates an inspiring i'm super honored by the award i really thought about like what i think was the magic sauce on this and i think an inspiring workplaces were all different types of efforts or focuses align and magic happens. It's like, it's a sum of all parts is greater than the whole. People love your purpose and their work connects to that, but also everyone has shared values and we're kind of clipping at the same pace that we're collectively up to solving something big. And again, people first is about our clients. We're going to deliver something bigger than we can only imagine, right? And I think that's what makes an inspiring workplace. It's not all the perks. It's not the nice office. It's not that stuff. It's it's really when you connect your everyday thing. And it's not fun. I, I think that a lot of times people are like, inspiring workplaces are fun. And they have this image of like a carnival and popcorn and cotton candy. And 
people are like joyous and it's like that's joy actually that's joy and it's temporary people can't live in a carnival like what you know like they can't live in that state it's just not sustainable it's exhausting and so yeah i think that we need to like think about what we visualize when we say inspiring workplace it's not the carnival it's actually like this like inner peace that i'm like doing something that matters really interesting differentiation you just drew there is that it, it doesn't have to be this unicorns and rainbows type thing, but it's, it's more about grounding everyone in a shared purpose and a shared vision. And I'm curious, have you ever been in an organization where you had to re-inspire your people or can work with the leadership team to re-inspire your people? I have two stories. I'll tell you kind of a little bit about Mini from two years ago and then like how I would answer that question because there's two different ways I would recommend. So start with your people. I think like first, if you really want to like create an inspiring workplace, really start with your people. When I joined this organization two years ago, it wasn't nearly as inspiring, but it had a lot of promise and I had a lot of great people. So I had two great key ingredients, but being a realist here is really important. You need to truly take inventory of what's not working and it may have nothing to do with HR. And this is why like I'm talking about revenue, I'm talking about churn. It may not be anything to do in my realm. And you have to have the courage to work with various parts of the organization and make improvements so that the natural flow of the company's performance can occur. Like, again, I told you, it, the strategy is wrong if the camp, company can't perform. So if you need to get things going so the company can perform, then you work on that. And then you start making both short-term and long-term bets. And that's what I did. And things over time or, or ages will improve and you got to leverage what's already working, right? So I said, we had a lot of promise. We had a lot of great people. I leveraged them. I leveraged them so much, but I didn't ignore the bad stuff. You can't ignore the bad stuff and you got to fix it. Now, if you have to re-inspire people, like you've been around, it's been a whatever. In my opinion, I think sometimes we think that we need to create that like sugar high laughing and spun around experience for people to get re-inspired. But that's just not the everyday. Inspired people, honestly, are ones that are emotionally connected to the purpose and see how their work contributes. So continue to shed light on that purpose. Show how your purpose is alive and well. So if you've been established, you've, you know it's working. And show the impact on your customers or whoever that is, their lives, their businesses, whatever the thing you're doing, it may not be sexy. <laughs> you might be a compliance software but it's important enough because people are spending their time in it. They, they think it's important enough. And bring the stories to help build off that passion. I do have one another controversial thing to say. Remember, people are adults. Like, they have brains. So don't try to energize people with a new direction when it's just the same direction. Like, I find that these, there's this like, we've been saying the same thing forever. Let's find a new way of saying it. Like, they're not dumb. If you need a true new direction, that's one thing. Say it loud and proud and get everyone knowing what it is. But if it's not, it's also okay. Communicate. Don't forget that like repetition isn't bad. Don't assume just because like, hey, it hasn't changed. It's a bad thing. You can create new life with it and help people continue to connect their everyday to the purpose. Right. That's a really interesting point about, again, bringing it almost full circle to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is remembering that people are adults and if we treat them with dignity and respect, it can, one, keep them keep them happy, contribute to a good experience, but also, like you just said, inspire them as well. Do you think that now we're in a unique time where we, in some cases, have four generations of the workforce? Baby, boomer, baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z. 
Do you think different things inspire those groups or is it all the same? And reflective of what you just said, it's that work connects with purpose. I always find this question a little funny. Like it's not always the same question, but it's like generational question. What do you do? Da, da, da. I, it's like, it's been the same from the beginning of time. <laughs> like, yes, the generations change and that's just what happens. That's called time. The opportunities and challenges of, of those generations and problems are just different. And here's the thing, like I've worked with every generation for me, with me, with, with them, like when someone is aligned with the values of the organization and the purpose and they get how their job relates, I don't find there's very much <laughs> complicated there, right? There may be tactic issues or differences even, like styles. But again, like, like everyone's dealing with it all the time. This is kind of like, what do we do when it's rainy? It's like, use an umbrella. So I, I find this question always so curious because maybe because I'm getting older that I'm like, I don't get it. I know there are definitely differences, but I think that when you really think about, you know, back to the inspiring places, like have a clear purpose, showcase what that is and connect what people are doing to that purpose. I don't think it matters what generation that is. Right. It sounds like, again, you're saying people are people and doesn't matter what age, where, where they're working. It really sounds like it boils down to a simple set of a simple set of principles that we can all employ regardless of the context. Now, obviously there's complexities, but with that toolkit, are there basic principles that we can follow? For sure. Yeah. Awesome. So we've come to the end of our interview, which means we actually are coming to our lightning round, which is a series of three questions. So you can answer it in one word, one sentence, or if you do have an anecdote to add, feel free. We don't have to keep it super lightning, whatever you're feeling. Okay. Yeah, okay. sounds good. Are you ready to start the lightning round? I am ready. Perfect. Okay. Question number one, what is the number one thing that you think HR leaders need to transform their thinking on? Performance management. I think people look at performance management. The employees think of performance management as punitive. Managers hate the process and it doesn't deliver what it's supposed to, which is higher performance. Interesting take. So I'm going to spin off that one. Then. <laughs> what what? What specifically do you think are the barriers to it being like even delivering? And do you have an alternative to, I guess, traditional performance management or it altogether? Yeah, I've rebuilt performance management now three times in a different way. I think the biggest barrier HR people have with rethinking performance is like they have this comp structure that is very driven by finance. Like I have a spreadsheet, I have a pool, that pool needs to be distributed like that whole thing just needs someone to put like a an explosive and let it blow up because it doesn't work anyway mm -hmm. the only person that ever is happy with that spreadsheet is a cfo <laughs> yeah. and so the alternative is really thinking about performance management as how do i get people thinking about their performance into the future not rehashing the performance in the past and when you think about performance in the future, you don't get the bad feedback because you would have already received it somewhere else that solves so many problems, right? People get energized. They have a career. They know what they have to do. You know what to hold them accountable for, like in terms of performance. This isn't about goals and whatever, but like the energy of the, the momentum you create in your organization when you change that conversation is astronomical, right? And let your employee lead it. If they don't do it, I don't care. Because I don't need a thing out of that to tell me what to put into my spreadsheet because I blew that up. <laughs> right? 
It doesn't matter. And so all of a sudden, it's no longer this like, we have a process, you must do the process. There's a book by Tamara Chandler. It's called Health Performance Management is Killing Performance. Highly recommend. Like, I know this is like a snippet. Recommend the book. It looks like a big book. It's not a big book. Like 50% of the book is like a toolkit. That's three hours you're ever spending your life. Yeah. Well, definitely going to take that away for myself and hopefully I will as well. Okay. Back to the lightning round. Number two is what is the most impactful piece of feedback you've ever received? I think the most impactful feedback is don't assume people can jump at the pace of my thinking and bring people along the journey, even if it seems obvious. And I, and it's not because I'm smart or, you know, fast thinker, other people have different experiences and they will plug in assumptions or things into something and come out with a different answer and conclusion, which is where friction begins. And so similar to our conversation when I was like, hey, when we talk about employee versus manager, you're kind of like, the world has been groomed to spend time on managers. And I'm like, no, here's why I don't believe in that. And explaining it helps people come on and be open to a different perspective. And so piece of advice I got was like, bring people through the journey, explain your points of view and like educate through that process. That's, that's great advice, I think, for anyone. Okay, last one. How much of your journey is made up of failures and how much of your journey would you say is made up of successes? It's 50-50. I think earlier in my career, I probably had a higher percentage of failures. I was fortunate to work in some organizations that let me clean up those failures and learn from them and like try again. So when I see people failing as long as they're learning from it, I'm usually okay with it. And then I think over time, it'll tilt the other way where you have successes because you can see what failure could feel and look like, then you will do everything possible to avoid it and think about all the potential pitfalls so that it doesn't fail. Right. So I think it over my career and my journey, I think it was like heavily weighted on lots of failures and big ones early on to now less failures, (laughs) let's hope. But I think it's important to not ever feel like invincible. I think that's what I always think. It's like, I'm going to make mistakes. And I will clean that. I will own them and I will clean them up. Like I remember what my interview with my CEO, I literally said like, I'm not perfect. And probably the furthest person from perfect, I will make mistakes and you're going to get frustrated, but I'll fix it. And humility is such a powerful trait, right? It allows us to move forward after those things and, and see more success too. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Agata, thank you so much for being on our podcast today. You have absolutely transformed my thinking on a couple things, as I mentioned, and sharing your thoughts, taking me on the journey through how you came to Woes, so valuable. And I know those are going to be so valuable for our listeners. So again, thank you so much for joining. Yeah. Thank you for so much for having me. I really appreciate it. This has been Transformations, the HR management podcast by Cardata. To find out more about Cardata's vehicle reimbursement software tailored for HR professionals, visit cardata.co and see how you could benefit from a fully managed reimbursement program.